0: This is Real Estate Rookie episode 312.
1: When I first got started investing as well, I had my first deal under contract and then a deal that I had offered on like months before, the seller finally came back to me and said, we'd like to accept your offer. I was like, what the heck? Like I went from zero deals to two in the span of like a couple of weeks and it was a little nerve wracking. So what I did was I partnered with someone else to help me get approved for that second mortgage and just kind of bear the burden of managing the second property. So don't be afraid of getting too many deals under contract at once. That's a good problem to have.
0: My name is Ashley Kerr, and I am sitting here next to my wonderful co-host, Tony Robinson.
1: And welcome to the Real Estate Rookie Podcast, where every week, twice a week, we bring you the inspiration, motivation, and stories you need to hear to kickstart your investing journey. Um, and like Ashley said, we're sitting here in our new studio. Uh, well, not ours. I guess mine, <laughs> yeah. but uh, Ashley's here <laughs> hanging out with me. Uh, but my wife and I, if you guys know, uh, Sarah's pregnant, and uh, my, my studio at the house is being converted into a nursery, so we either have to buy a bigger house or get an office. And uh, get an office seemed like the more sensible thing to do. So uh, we're sitting on the studio side right now. My my office side is over there, and um, Ashley was here helping me kind of put up lights, and we got some fake plants to to make sure everything was ready for today's rookie episode. So I appreciate you coming out to SoCal and. Hanging out with me for a few days, Ash.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Tony. Um, my options were either staying with all of my producers in an Airbnb <laughs> <and> some of uh, <laughs> the other podcast hosts, or me and Sarah having a girl's sleepover, yeah. so yeah. I chose to stay at Sarah's house. Yeah. Um, and no, she uh, said
1: Sarah's house, not Tony's house. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> Tony will be there, be or there. actually he'll probably still be in his studio probably. working, still and we'll working. be back there. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm excited to be here, and we also have something really exciting coming up tomorrow. We have received a special invitation to actually record a podcast at the Spotify Studios in L.A. Yeah,
1: and we're actually going to be talking about... This beautiful book, uh, "Real Estate Partnerships," is a book that Ashley and I co-authored. Um, Ashley's second book under the Bigger Pockets brand. Uh, my first book with Bigger Pockets. So, just in a really cool thing for us to experience. But uh, yeah, we're going to be talking with Dave and Rob from the Real Estate Podcast about this book. Uh, if you guys haven't checked it out yet, make sure you get on the wait list. We've got a bunch of uh, cool bonuses for people to sign up, but the book is launching on August 10th. If you head over to biggerpockets.com slash partnerships, uh, that'll take you to a landing page where you can learn more about the book and then enter for a chance to, drumroll please, be a guest on this podcast. Yes, that's right. Uh, one lucky person who purchased the Real Estate Partnership books will have a chance to be a guest on the Real Estate Rookie Podcast. Who knows? Maybe you can be sitting on this couch right here in between me and Ashley. (laughs) Um, But that's what we're looking for, guys, is is someone with a great story to come talk about uh, their partnerships and and things like that. So again, biggerpockets.com slash partnerships to learn a bit more.
0: And if you want to go back and listen to our Spotify episode, if you guys missed it, we have recorded episode 310. So you just have to go back to last week and you can take a listen to it.
1: All right. So we got a a few amazing, as always, questions from the rookie audience today. We're going to be talking about uh, LLCs and whether or not you really need them. We'll be talking about uh, single family versus multifamily and which one makes the most sense. Uh, We'll be talking about private money lending and how do you set that up the right way, and and how do you protect yourself, and what are the options? And we also talk about how long should you let your offer sit with the seller before you pull it. Uh, so lots of great content for us to dive into today, but before we do that, I just want to give a quick shout-out to someone that loved to save five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, this person goes by the name of awesome-er dude. Um, This person says, uh, all five stars and and capitals. Uh, I'm a rookie in real estate, but I feel confident that this podcast has given me enough ideas to start. I plan on using this knowledge to really help my family. So awesome-er dude. Uh, We hope that you can use this content to help your family because that's what we're all about here at the Rookie Podcast. So if you are listening, if you're a part of the Rookie audience and you have not yet taken the time to leave us an honest rating and review, please do. Ah, uh, the more reviews we get, the more folks we're able to reach. The more folks we can reach, the more folks we can help. Just like awesome or dude, uh, and that's what we're all about here at the Ricky Podcast. So again, just a few minutes, to leave that rating review. We would appreciate it.
0: Plus, tomorrow we are seeing David and Rob from the OG Podcast, and we really do want to, you know, say that we truly are the number one bigger Absolutely. podcast. Absolutely, <laughs> right. So this week, I want to give an Instagram shout out to Mindy Templeton. Her Instagram is at Investing in Your Wealth. And Mindy reached financial freedom at the age of 37 with real estate. And she shares deals that she has done, but also a lot of educational tips and advice um, that she takes the time to post about. So go give at Investing in Your Wealth a follow.
1: I used to think working from
3: home was the dream, until it wasn't. Between the distractions and the solitude, I was struggling. But then, I discovered Industrious Office, and honestly, it's been a game-changer. Every day at Industrious feels like stepping into a zone of productivity. The high-speed internet never fails me during crucial moments, and the workspace... It's not only stylish, but designed to boost your focus and creativity. Plus, the daily breakfast and endless coffees are super cool. Meeting other driven professionals right where I work has not just expanded my network, it's inspired me. It's amazing how being around other focused people can push you to achieve more, you know what I mean? If you're looking for a sign to change your workspace, this is it. Check out Industrious by visiting BiggerPockets.com slash Industrious. Then click Join Now and use the promo code Pockets to get a free week of co-working when you take a tour. That's BiggerPockets.com slash Industrious and use promo code Pockets after clicking Join Now. Experience for yourself how the right environment can change the way you work. Industrious, it's where your best work happens.
0: Okay, so our first question today is from Shannon K. Question. There's a nice home listed at one hundred and thirty thousand. It's been on the market for five months. I offered one hundred and ten thousand. This would be a personal primary residence. How long would you wait for a response or counter offer before rescinding? I guess it depends on if another (laughs) deal comes up or not. So uh might as well be patient and wait. Mm -hmm. Um If you don't have any other properties you're putting offers on and need to have a decision, then I would say let them take their time.
1: I've I've personally never rescinded an offer before. Um, I submit a lot of offers and I just let them sit basically until I get a response. Um, So don't feel like you need to put something uh, or you need to pull it back. You know, like if the seller wants to take their time, let them take their time. Uh, I think the longer your offer is sitting in front of them as the the days and weeks go by, maybe the more motivated they become to actually sell to you. And, you know, I've shared on the podcast before the one of our recent flips, we ended up getting it for one hundred thousand dollars less than what it was originally listed for. I didn't rescind my offer. I submitted my offer that was low to them originally. Um, They denied that offer. Uh, They came back to me a few months later and said, hey, will you take this number? I said, no, my offer is this. And we went back and forth a few times, uh, you know, and eventually they agreed to my initial number. So I think whatever your number is, it works for you. Put that number in there. Uh, I know what a concern might be is like, well, what happens if they come back and they say yes, but I've already moved on to another deal. Uh, So that exact thing happened to me when I first got started investing as well. I had my first deal under contract. And then a deal that I had offered on like months before, the seller finally came back to me and said, hey, we'd like to accept your offer. But I, you know, I was like, what the heck? Like I went from zero deals to two in the span of like a couple of weeks. And it was a little nerve wracking. So what I did was I partnered with someone else to help me get approved for that second mortgage and just kind of bear the burden of managing the second property. And, you know, it ended up being the beginning of a long partnership. So don't be afraid of getting too many deals under contract at once. That's a good problem to have, to have too many good deals under contract, because you can always find ways to, to disposition those.
0: I have seen it where investors or even people trying to go after a primary residents have put a expiration date and time on their offer as kind of a, a scare tactic mm-hmm. in a sense as to okay, the this offer is going away if you don't accept it. So for example, you put in your offer and say, this offer is good for 48 hours. Um, if it's not accepted, I'm moving on to another deal. Mm. Because when sellers are reviewing offers, you know, oftentimes they take one offer, but then they'll say, well, I have these other two backup offers. So if this first one falls through, like I know I have these two other ones, or they may feel panicked as to, well, we might as well, take this deal because after 48 hours, we're not going to get this deal. And what if we don't get any other offer? Okay. So there, there is some kind of game that can be played and putting that into your offer. Um, but I, I think if you have no reason to do that as to, there's no other property you're trying to offer on and you can only buy one at this time. And especially with it being your primary residence, you might as well let your offer sit with them. I would have your agent, uh, follow up with their agent and just say hey you know what's going on have they you know discussed it have they looked at it even find out maybe they're out of town or something and that's the reason they haven't sat down to discuss your offer so there may be reasons that you're they haven't responded yet um so if you are doing this off market you could always just ask the seller directly and say hey i was just wondering if you had a time to look at my offer would you like to sit down together and we can review my offer and that kind of opens up uh the conversation to even negotiate or find out the reasons they are hesitant to accept your offer
1: last thing like you know we you, do you use docusign to send your offers no you don't what do no you use?
0: i sit down well i email it to them first uh-huh. just email it to them and then i go and i the next like day. So within 24 hours, sometimes 48 hours, I will schedule a a meeting with them in person. So I'll send it to them by email so they have time to review it. And then I go and sit down with them in person and go over the contract and then have them sign that. That's
1: pretty cool. Yeah. But I'm
0: also doing deals in my market too, where it's not anything far away from me. I don't think
1: I've ever, actually the only time I met the seller from one of my investments was my first deal. And, like, I flew into Louisiana to, like, be at the closing table. Yeah. And, you know, we were just, like, sitting across the table signing papers yeah. from each other. Outside of that, I've never met a single one of my sellers before. Well, is
0: this for off-market you're talking about?
1: Off-market and – oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess off yeah, Th- That's what I was saying. But for yeah. on-market, yes. It's yeah. all
0: DocuSign or whatever. Yeah. I was just thinking
1: it might be cool. Like, uh, DocuSign, if you're listening, uh, like, when you send your offer uh, – you know, like, on, on like um, – I don't know, like those infomercials where it's got like the, the countdown timer. Mm-hmm. Imagine if you could send your offer but have like a little countdown timer inside of it. So it's like counting that down.
0: expiration yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: Anyway, DocuSign, if you're listening, that'd be a, a nice little feature to, to add.
0: Okay, so our next question is from PJ Aurora. As a newbie, do you suggest going with a single family home or multifamily for your first investment? Oh. So Tony, your first was single Single family family. and my first was a duplex. Okay. So do you want (laughs) to advocate for each one?
1: (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, I, I went single family and honestly I was, I was looking, I was looking for both Mm -hmm. single family and multi. um, But just the, the specific loan product that I was using to buy my first deal, it required that I buy a house or property um where the purchase price and the cost of rehab was no more than like 72.5% of the purchase price. Uh, I'm sorry, of the uh of the ARV. And I had a hard time finding multifamily in that city mm-hmm. that met that criteria. So I was kind of forced into uh buying single families. So PJ that's that's one thing to consider is like what are what are the constraints of your situation? Like for me, my loan product made it a little bit more difficult to go into multifamily to begin with. And I, I kind of had to focus on, on single family. So uh, I think both are good deals really just kind of comes down to your unique situation and, and personal preference. Like why, why'd you go duplex?
0: So for me it was because I was working as a property manager and it was only multifamily mm-hmm. deals that this investor was doing. And so my thought process was more units under one roof equals less overhead. So if I have one unit vacant, there's at least another unit that, you know, is being rented out. So it's not like I'm at zero percent occupancy just because my one tenant in a single family has moved out. I think Tony brought up really great points about what are your constraints, but also like what are your opportunities, too? So do you, are there more multifamily? So in Buffalo, you'll go down certain streets where every single house is a duplex. Um, you'll go to other areas where there's hardly any multifamily. So think about what the market conditions are, too, that you're investing in and where are those advantages and opportunities for you as far as going single-family or multifamily. Another thing to consider is Are you going to be self-managing or are you going to be using a property management company? So if you are going to go small multifamily, you know, two to four units, having four different families or four different households living under one roof and you're self-managing can cause some kind of issues that may arise um, that you may not want to deal with. So maybe single family is a better option for you because you don't want to deal with the headaches of tenants all living together because we have this one situation right now where a resident keeps putting in a work order that her, she hears water running in the walls and all it is when the tenant above her flushes, flushes the, the toilet, toilet. it's <laughs> the water going down the pipes. There's literally nothing wrong There's and nothing water, we can do about this, walls. but those are things you have to to think about if you are going to go multifamily is kind of tenant issues between tenants that, that will come up. Um, another thing that Tony touched on was the funding, the financing, you know, what kind of financing are you getting and are you eligible to buy, you know, multifamily or doesn't have to be single family too.
1: One of the other things, because you have both multifamily and single family, uh, do you notice that you have more turnover in the multifamilies versus the single family homes?
0: Yes, my two single family homes, one I've had since um, this was actually my old house. So Mm -hmm. I think I moved into it maybe 2010, maybe it was. And that house has had the same tenant in it since we built our new house in 2016. So since 2016, it's had the same family living there. And then my other single family, the first tenants to move into it when I bought it in I think maybe 2017 I think it was maybe 2018 and those tenants um, lived there for I think three years and they ended up building a house and they moved out and it was actually like their daughter's sister-in-law or something that was like ready to move in right away and we've had that same tenant in there for since then so we've only had that one turnover but yeah, that's a great point. There's a mm. lot more turnover in the the small multifamily.
1: Yeah. So there, there's pluses and minuses to, to both, PJ. I think it's all about like what strategy makes the most sense for you. Here's what I learned about real estate investing. People can make a ton of money with every single strategy. Mm-hmm. Like it literally does not matter. Like if you want to flip land, if you want to do small multifamily, if you want to do large multifamily, if you want to wholesale, if you want to flip, you want to do Airbnbs, like whatever strategy it is that you choose, if you just like commit to getting really good at that thing, you're going to be successful at it. It's, it's just more so which one kind of speaks to you, which one aligns with your strengths, with your, with your, uh, you know, just who you are as a person. And I think that's what you should focus on more so.
0: Yeah. And I think, um, one other thing to kind of look at too, is what your exit strategies are. Mm. So, For a single family home, that may be easier to sell. If you decide you don't want it as a rental anymore, it's now not only being sold as an investment property, but also it can be sold as a a single family home as somebody's primary residence, Mm -hmm. which may be easier to sell than, you know, a a triplex in your area because families want the single family. So they sell a lot better than multifamily does in your area.
1: Yeah, it's a good point.
0: Okay, the next question is from Brett Labiche. Starting out, do I get an LLC to buy a property or can that wait? Very first, common question. Yeah,
1: first, I just want to give you props for pronouncing that last name. I thought you were gonna pass <laughs> that one on to me, but uh, I love I love the the flair there. Um, so yeah, LLCs. I mean, l- let's just you know take a trip down Memory Lane when you got your very first property. Did you set up an LLC first?
0: I did because I had a business partner. Hmm. So that's why I did. And anything that I bought for me personally without a partner, I put into my name. Hmm. And then I eventually put it into an LLC. But starting out, anything I purchased myself with no partner was in my personal name.
1: Yeah. our My very first deal, I bought my personal name. Our first like multiple deals yeah. uh, was all in my personal name. Uh, part of that was because the kind of debt we were using didn't allow for uh, LLCs to like hold the debt. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were kind of forced into doing it that way, but we just did an episode. Um, gosh, if our, produ- we're, we're recording this without our producers, so they're not <laughs> here in the background for you to this information, but we'll put it in the show notes. But we recently did an episode where we interviewed, uh, some folks from insurance companies and they give a really fantastic breakdown about the difference and the purpose of insurance versus an, an LLC. So your insurance, uh, in addition to protecting the actual physical property itself, it also serves to give you liability protection um, in a lot of ways, very similar and sometimes above and beyond what a traditional LLC might be able to give you. And in that episode, they talk about how uh, in a lot of situations, your you know your corporate veil can be pierced with your LLC. So I'm saying all that to say that uh, you don't necessarily need to start an LLC in order to buy your first property. Property, uh, if your if your goal for the LLC is as, is asset protection or like liability protection, uh, you can get you know increased home coverage. You can get an umbrella policy. If your goal for the LLC is tax benefits, you can reap all of the tax benefits without having the LLC created as well. Um, so I, I think just ask yourself if the juice is worth the squeeze in that first deal. Um, you know, you see some investors that maybe wait until they have a few properties under contract where they they feel that there is a little bit more risk there. And then they'll go ahead and drop everything into an LLC. But I, I would say for that first deal, it's definitely not absolutely necessary. But again, I am not an attorney, uh, you know, nor do I play one on a podcast. So talk to talk to your own attorney. I understand your unique situations, but that's that's just my two cents.
0: I've decided to pick up the producer's job and I yes. looked it up and it's episode 307. There
1: you go, so <laughs> episode 307.
0: <laughs> Look at it. Uh, another thing to consider is, your own personal net worth. So, if you have a lot of assets already that if you were sued personally, you've had a lot of, you know, equity and things um, that could be sold to pay off whatever the lawsuit is, then it might entice somebody to go after you more. If you have a very high net worth because you have things that they can take from you, if you have nothing to lose, then. Really, what are you protecting yourself from losing yeah. <laughs> in a sense? And, you know, if you rent an apartment, you don't own a car, you have a bike or maybe your car is leveraged to the hill. You don't really have any equity in it. You don't have really any savings. You don't have any, you know, stock investments or anything like that. Then you're not really opening yourself up to a 2 big of a lawsuit because you can't get sued for that much beyond what your insurance is going to cover because you just don't have anything to give more than that.
2: Remember when you had to pay to get a leads phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost.
1: Head over to corporatedirect.com slash biggerpockets to schedule a free 15-minute consultation with an incorporating specialist. Mention Real Estate Rookie and get a $100 discount on your formation. That's corporatedirect.com
4: biggerpockets. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
0: Okay. And our last question today is from Matt Hammond. How does one become a private lender? What paperwork steps needed to be completed when making a deal? So I've only been a private lender once or twice and it was just to friends and was very much <laughs> <laughs>
1: like back, no. of the, back of the napkin type.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, we had a, a note payable agreement, mm-hmm. but, um, as far as lending to a complete stranger, maybe somebody you meet over the internet, uh, what are some of the things your private money lenders have asked you?
1: Yeah, for, for sure. So I've, I've never been the private money lender, but I've definitely received funds from private money lenders. And, um, there's, there's a couple of things and a couple of different ways you can do it. But first I just want to say, Matt, you know, he posted this in the real estate rookie Facebook group. I can almost guarantee like after he posted that he became like the most popular person <laughs> yeah. in that group saying, how do I become a private money lender? Um, but it just goes to show even for our rookies that are listening, there are people out there, uh, who have money that they want to put to work, but don't have the time, desire or ability to do it themselves. Funny enough, we actually just got an email Ash on, uh, maybe like two days ago one of our older private money lenders. And, you know, we've kind of slowed down on our flips Mm -hmm. and he reached out to us and said, Hey guys, I've got $200,000 that I'm just sitting on. Like, help me put this to work. (laughs) He literally reached out to us. So that's what happens when you connect with the right people is that they, they, they don't want to see their $200,000 just sitting in the bank, you know, losing money to inflation. They want to put it to work and, and get a good return. So for our rookies that are listening, it's a big mindset shift. And one that was not difficult, but it was it was just like a very eye opening experience for me that people had, you know, several hundred thousand dollars just laying around that they wanted to just hand off to someone else to put to work. And once you realize that, I think it really opens up your mind about what's possible with private money lending. But to, to answer your question, Matt, um, in terms of the the documents that we use, we have uh, two important ones. We have our mortgage security document and we have our promissory note. Uh, the mortgage security document has a different name depending on what state you're in, uh, but for us here in California, it's called a, uh, a deed of trust, uh, and then we have the promissory note. So each one kind of serves a, a slightly different purpose. So the promissory note is the agreement between uh, the lender and the borrower, and it states all of the terms of that loan. Uh, so it talks about the term, right? So how how long is this note going to be in place? The interest rate, uh, the principal. Uh, If the interest is due over the life of the loan, if it's, um, you know, one balloon payment at the end. So it just details all of the the nuances of that agreement between the lender and the borrower. Same thing you would see if you're getting a a loan from Bank of America, just with way less pages. um, But it it just details the the note itself. With that promissory note, uh, the borrower signs that note. Uh, and then you mail that or, or send it, however you want to send it, to the actual lender. Um, so that's the, the promissory note, the agreement between the lender and the borrower. Now, the mortgage security document—that is the paper that ties the promissory note to the property. So, like, let's say that that Ashley uh, comes to me for a loan on One Two Three Main Street. Ash and I agree to uh, uh, to a note. Ashley signs a promissory note. She sends that over to me. Um, and then Ashley also signs the mortgage security documents and gets it notarized. And then that gets filed during the closing process uh, with the county or whatever local city uh, the, the property's in. So now if someone goes to look up the the records for 123 Main Street, Ashley will be listed as the owner on the deed But I will be listed as the lender on the property with a lien for whatever amount Ashley and I agree to. And the reason that's important is if, for whatever reason, Ashley defaults on her payments and we're not able to come to an agreement and say, I want to foreclose on the property. In order for me to be able to do that, I have to prove that I have a lien against this property. And that's what the the deed of trust does or the mortgage security document does It, it shows that I have a lien against this property. The second reason why it's important to file it with the county is because uh, say that Ashley does a really good job, say that it was a flip that her and I agreed to, and she goes out and she sells that flip for a super handsome profit. Uh, When that deed of trust is recorded, before escrow will release any funds to Ashley, they'll see my lien first. They'll reach out to me and say, hey, just so you know, Ashley's selling 123 Main Street based on the promissory note that you guys signed. Here's the principal and insurance that's due back to you. When escrow collects the money from the buyer of 123 Main Street, they pay me first, and then Ashley gets a, a check for the balance. So that's the the documents that we use, and that's kind of how they, they play with each other.
0: Yeah, so if you've ever sold a property before that had a, a mortgage on it, mm. you don't even— see the money that is owed to the bank, they <laughs> right. right at the closing table, your attorney takes that and pays off the mortgage on the property. As
1: nice of a, a person as you might be, they do not trust you with, you <laughs> know, several hundred thousand dollars just to hand that back to your to dra- Drive
0: to. it to the the local <laughs> bank and, <laughs> yeah. and pay off and your loan on your own. It, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what's really important there is that you have the the promissory note, but also that the property is the collateral and you get that lien position. Mm-hmm. Um, on the property. So you can contact an attorney um, that can help you set it up if you are uh, where you are lending on the property. So maybe you live in California, but you're lending on a property in New York. I would use a New York state attorney since that is where the closing is happening. Mm -hmm. So have you done that before for your Tennessee properties? Do you use a, you know, all of our flips, uh,
1: all of our private money transactions were here in California. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I would agree with that, too. I think whatever state the property is in is where you'd want to draw those up. Um, I think the the only other thing that I'd add to that, uh, and I've seen other friends who other friends of ours who flip to do it this way, um, where say that they're volume flippers, like where that's their their main bread and butter. Uh, Instead of going through the the steps in the process of drafting up new documents every single time, uh, they will just raise private money without having any properties, even under contract, almost like a fund, mm-hmm. um, where they'll say, Hey, I have three private money lenders. Uh, and each of them gives me, you know, whatever, $500,000. So I have $1.5 million to work with. I'm going to pay them, uh, interest payments every quarter. Uh, there is no promissory or there is a promissory note, but there's no deed of trust because this isn't tied to any specific property. Um, the, the, the benefit to you as the borrower is that there's less paperwork. You don't have to worry about trying to get all this signed up for every single property. Um, but obviously, there's a little bit more risk here that if you were to default, now that private money lender doesn't have their money tied to a specific property that they can go and foreclose and try and take away from you. So um, usually, you see that when you've built a relationship with those private mm-hmm. money lenders and you've maybe already done a few deals together, you guys know each other, and and that's kind of how they they handle it that way. So. Um, I think how I initially explained it is good for the first go round, which sounds like what you're getting into, Matt. But then just know if you want to go down the road where you just get quarterly payments every month, um, that's an option as well.
0: Yeah, I would just lead a, a word of caution as to making sure that you are vetting the deals that um, this flipper is doing, because we have seen such a drastic change totally. in the market where maybe you were getting such a great return. And then, you know, especially during, you know, 2022, the uh, flipper wasn't making what they were, and then now they they can't pay you. So just be cautious that just because somebody has had a great track record doesn't mean that they always will. Like there's going to be bad deals once in a while. And it's it's really important to know that you're who you're lending those that money to. If you're not going to hold the property as a collateral, asking them what they're almost their exit strategy Mm -hmm. is to pay you if they do end up defaulting on the loan. Like what other options do they have to pay you? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's a lot of investors that have tons of money in reserves and they don't use their own money to, to buy deals. So, Worst case scenario, they're tapping into their own savings to go ahead and and pay you.
1: We literally just had that happen in our business. And, you know, I shared uh, one of the other episodes, but it was actually two properties. I shared Mm -hmm. on one. We had two properties that that this happened to. But, you know, we had to write a very big check uh, to pay off our private money lenders. But that was our commitment to them. Like, hey, guys, we had an agreement. We want to make sure that we. Um, you know, protect this relationship more than anything. Uh, So even if it means we have to lose money, we're going to make sure that we we make things right. Uh, So, yeah, you great point. You want to vet the deal, but also vet kind of the financial standing of that person. And maybe it's not necessarily like, hey, show me your bank accounts. Right. But um, just, you know, say, hey, if things were to go south, are you liquid enough or do you have access to enough cash to still make sure that this this note gets paid in full?
0: Which that really isn't something that you couldn't ask for mm. is their tax returns, their yeah. bank statements, like making sure that their own personal finances are have a strong foundation mm. so that, you know, if they literally have nothing yeah. and they're, <laughs> they over-withdraw on their own, you know, personal checking account, yeah. maybe, you know, they yeah. they can't manage their own money. How are they going to manage yours. Their, yeah, yeah, yours? Um, another thing, too, is to think about is with, you know, how Tony mentioned that, you know, he took his own money to pay back that private money lender to make it right. You know, think about different circumstances where if you are either the private money lender or you're actually a partner where you're bringing in the capital. And in that sense, if this person was your partner on the deal, then would you have had to pay them anything or that was more of a risk for for them to do that? That's
1: actually a great call out. Right. So in our book, real estate partnerships, uh, yeah, there's, zoom in on that, guys. But in that book, uh, one of the chapters, we talk about the differences between equity and uh, debt-based partnerships. So you can be a private money lender in the traditional sense where it's an actual note and, and you kind of have that set up. But what you said, Ash, is like, I'm the money partner in an equity partnership, yeah. right? So uh, you can bring the capital for, say it's a flip, So you put up all the money for the flip, uh, the partner manages it, and then instead of you getting a fixed percentage return on your investment, you get a percentage of the profits. So um, the the downside is a little bit higher, right? Because if, say, the deal goes badly, you're not going to get a fixed return but the upside is there as well, right? So like say this person just crushes it on the flip instead of you getting a 10% return, maybe you get like a 50% return. So that's another thing to consider as well is that you can be a private money lender technically inside of an equity partnership as well.
0: Well, thank you guys so much for joining us for this week's Rookie Reply. I'm Ashley at Wealth From Rentals and he's Tony at Tony J. Robinson. And we will be back on Wednesday with a guest.